Welcome back. We're going to preach from Ephesians chapter 6 this morning again. And we've sort of slowed down a little bit to go through the spiritual warfare passages with a bit more detail. Um, and so we're in Ephesians chapter 6. The section is verses 10 um, through 20. Uh, but we're mainly going to focus our time this morning on verses 14 through 17. And what's often known as the armor of God. Um, in the first sermon in this little mini series, we, we looked at um, you know, how we need to know our enemy, that we don't just live in a world where there's flesh and blood, but um, the Bible teaches us that we, we live in a supernatural world, that we have spirits, that there's evil spirits um, out there, that there's a, an enemy called Satan who's actually trying to destroy our lives, um, destroy our world, destroy our church, lead us away from the goodness and sweetness of God. And he has all these schemes that he's trying to put into practice to lie to us and draw us away from him. Um, and so we learned that we have an enemy. Uh, and then the past, um, then last week we looked at how we actually aren't alone in our fight against the enemy. Um, we are equipped with everything we need by God to stand firm. And we looked at the first three pieces of spiritual armor that the Lord has given us. Um, the, the belt of truth, as Henry mentioned in the worship time, the breastplate of righteousness to protect our hearts and our worship, um, and the boots of gospel peace, um, the message of the gospel that we take to defend ourselves with the gospel and to go out into enemy territory and bring people back out of the darkness into the light that they can have peace with King Jesus. Um, and so today we're going to finish off by looking at the final three pieces of spiritual armor. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. I hope it's helping you to be reminded that in all these things, there's more going on in our world. There's more going on potentially in your temptations and your sin than just you. Uh, there actually is an evil one who seeks um, your destruction. And if you're not yet a Christian or maybe you're a skeptic and you kind of think this is weird, that's okay. Just, just, Listen in, believe as if it's true, enter it, and then you can ask your questions afterwards. So just assume it's kind of like there's, a, there's evil forces and things like that. Read the Bible, see what it has to say. Um, and then maybe in the breakout rooms, if you've got questions, you can ask questions at the end. We're definitely not afraid of questions. So we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, sorry, having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God and heavenly father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus name. Amen. When I was a teenager, one of the things, the greatest time in my week normally was Friday night going to youth group. Um, I was part of a really fun youth group where we had great leaders that always um, sacrificed a lot of their time and energy to help us to have epic Friday nights and heaps of fun. And one of the things we always did once a term was a thing, or actually maybe it was once a year, I can't remember. We, it was called Wide Games Night. 
which is basically army style games where you dress up in all black or camo. Um, if you saw my son Jasper and Lucas even before they were wearing camo this morning. So you get your camo gear on, your kind of army fatigues on and you go out at night to a bush area and you play games like capture the flag um, or sardines or things like that. Anyway, we used to love playing the game capture the flag where you split the youth group down into two teams. Um, each team gets a flag and you go and you create a little base camp and you have to put, you know, otherwise it's impossible. You put little glow sticks around your flag and you plant it in a tree or something like that. Then everyone has to go a couple of meters out from it. You can't doggy guard the, you know, the flag. And as you're out in the middle of the night with your clothes on, some of you have to go out on attack and some of you were there in defense. Uh, and we'd run through the, the fire trails of the bush trying to get these flags and trying to tip other teammates. Uh, but one of the things um, I used to love the most was before they brought in like safety rules um, into youth group, we were just basically allowed to do whatever we want. And leaders were allowed to sort of do whatever they wanted. And we had some pretty hardcore leaders. So we'd be running through these fields at night and then just out of nowhere, you'd be picked up and slammed onto the ground and, you know, just taken back by a leader who would drag you back to the base and you'd have to start again. And, and we just, it was like constant fear, but also adrenaline and excitement because you'd be sprinting as hard as you can with the flag thinking, I'm going to make it home. I'm going to make it home. And then bang, someone would shoulder charge and you'd be down on the ground. And you know, you're like a 13 year old kid and they're like a 19 year old man. But for some reason, like that was awesome. And I love that. And these leaders were crazy. One time we went up uh, to the top of a mountain and we were kind of doing it up, up scale, up a cliff face sort of thing. And some of these guys had no fear at all. They would get the flag and they would just jump, just jump all the way back down the mountain. You could never catch them. They were, they were psycho. They were beasts. Um, I tell that story because I think the Christian life, um, in some sense, can be analogous to this capture the flag scenario. You see, what happened on the cross is that Jesus has already gone into enemy territory He's got the flag and he's taken it all the way back to base and it's safe. It's secure. He's winning. He's defeated Satan and his forces and all those who are on his team and he's won the battle. However, the timer hasn't yet gone off. And so the flag is there in the base, but the game's not over yet. The timer still has to count down. And we sort of, in a sense, are waiting for that time to go off before the victory is complete. And so for those of us who have put our trust in Christ, we've actually changed teams. You know, we've gone from being on Satan's team. That's what Ephesians 2 says about us. And once we saw Jesus run with the victory flag back, we've gone, actually, I'm going to join the, the guy who's winning. And Jesus is such an awesome leader that he says, if you turn to me and join my team, I will let you join, even though I've already won the battle and you were my enemy. And so if you're a Christian, you've joined Jesus's team. You've got the flag. You've already won but you're waiting for the time to go off. But that doesn't mean that the enemy is just going to sit there and pout. No, the enemy is trying to do all that he can and they can to ruin the game for those who are winning. The enemy is out there trying to trip people up, like those leaders coming in and tackling us with all their force. The enemy is out there in the dark, and a lot of the times we can't see them. Uh, and they've laid booby traps. They've got, you know, a fishing line across two trees trying to trip us up. All as we wait for that timer to go off. And so we find ourselves as Christians in this now but not yet period. Jesus Christ has won. We are free. Sin has been dealt with. 
We have a hope for heaven in the future, but we're not there yet. The victory has been won, but the battle still rages on. And so as we're in the dark, so to speak, in the night and still in this world, there's actual evil opponents who are trying to take us down. And so we desperately need armor to protect us from their tricks, their schemes, and their booby traps. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul says that we have as Christians. We're told that we really do have all the armor that we need. Read again verses 10 through 11. So we don't need to be totally afraid because we have a power. Look at it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You see, the main point this week is the same main point we had last week, which is this. In the middle of this dangerous spiritual war, we need to put on our spiritual armor so that we can stand, fight, and win. Remember, brothers and sisters, and those who are listening in, we are in the middle of a dangerous spiritual war. The flag's at base camp, but the enemy's still prowling about. So if we want to be protected, if you don't want the enemy to ruin the joy that you can have in Christ, the peace that you can have in Christ, the holiness and, and life that we have in Christ, we need to put on our spiritual armor. And we're promised by God that if we put on the spiritual armor, we truly will be equipped to stand and resist and fight and win. And that should give us joyful confidence, even in the face of this dangerous battle. So that's our main thing today. We want to look at the final three pieces of spiritual armor that we need to put on in order that we can be protected. So three points for today. Take up the shield of faith. Put on the helmet of salvation. And point number three, draw the sword of the spirit. Point number one, take up the shield of faith. Let's read again verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So now we move from sort of the pieces of armor that they're wearing, the belt and the breastplate and the shoes, to a piece of armor that you sort of got to hold, the shield of faith. And it's likely, it's possible that Paul is sort of um, imaging the Roman soldier and his massive shield that he would have. You see, the Roman soldier in the first century had a shield about the size of a door, okay? So it's a huge shield, and they would use this shield as a way of protecting them against all manner of the attacks of the enemy, whether it be a sword or an axe coming at them, a literal person, or arrows that would fly in from the distance. You see, this shield was, you know, wood and then often overlaid with um, leather skin, and what they would do is they would actually dip this shield and soak it in water so that um, it was drenched and wet so that when they actually went into battle, as they were standing there protecting themselves against the enemy, 
if the enemy had these special missiles, these special arrows that had, um, you know, actually pitch and tar and flames on them, as they were fired at them, the arrow would hit the shield. And if they didn't have it waterproofed, the shield would start to catch on fire. So they're trying to protect themselves. The arrows are coming in. And if they didn't have it waterproofed, their actual shield would go on fire and then be in dangerous peril. Uh, but if they soaked their shield in water, the arrow would hit it and actually not catch a light and they could remain there protected with the shield. The Apostle Paul is using this battle imagery that we stand in a battle and we need a shield. And the shield that we have is the shield of faith. So what that means literally is that faith is our shield. So what is this shield of faith? Well, I think the best way of kind of describing it is, is that it's faith in Jesus Christ or faith in God in general, but specifically in Jesus Christ. The shield of faith is putting your trust in Jesus and keeping your trust in Jesus. Hebrews 11 is a helpful way of defining faith and it can help us in this war. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, we need the shield of faith because we fight an unseen spiritual enemy, don't we? We can't see Satan. We can't, it would be a lot easier if you're walking around your house and you go, oh, Satan's in here. Okay, get the shield, let's go. But you can't see him. And you can't see Jesus right now. So we have an unseen savior. And so faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is putting your whole trust in what Jesus has done in the past, in the present and the future for you and laying it all on him. Faith is taking up that conviction that Jesus really is king, that Jesus really will win the battle. And it requires active trust. It's wholly leaning upon Jesus in those moments of temptation, in those moments of doubt and despair. You see, as the arrows fly at us and they, they sail overhead, these dangerous missiles, God has given us a beautiful means of protection, a shield of faith that we can hide under by putting our trust not in ourselves, but only in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at the verse again, as terrible and as frightening as could you imagine seeing fiery arrows flaming? If you're a warrior in battle and seeing fire coming, shooting at you, can you imagine how terrible that is? But in the verse, it says this, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You see, the promise we have in this verse is that that word can there is the, the idea of you are able to, you have the power to. So by putting your faith in Jesus in the midst of temptation and, and doubt and discouragement, you actually can extinguish the darts of the evil one. It will happen. That's the promise of scripture. If you put your faith in Christ. So the danger is real. The enemy will shoot things at you. And he's given us this protection, the shield of faith. 
So what in particular then are these fiery darts? You know, what does this look like um, in, you know, in real life? Well, I thought of two ways we could maybe summarize some of the ways in which Satan likes to shoot fiery arrows at us. I've already mentioned them sort of. Number one, we will face the fiery darts of temptation. You see, there's times in our life when we're just cruising along, living, and uh, we, we think we're just enjoying the Lord or whatever, and then suddenly, just out of nowhere, or, or maybe it's not out of nowhere, it's been coming over time, but you have this great temptation to sin. And it feels like it's a, it's a, a desire burning within you. A great temptation, perhaps, to, to gossip about someone and put someone down. A great temptation to look lustfully at another human being and treat them as an object. A great temptation to get for yourself some kind of money or some kind of gain that, you know, isn't yours. A great temptation to be selfish, to get mine and to protect it. Satan shoots these particular temptations at us and they may come in the form of a TV show or a conversation with someone or an opportunity um, in the workplace or at home. And the fiery dart is coming across and it's hanging up there in midair. And we have an opportunity in that moment, as that temptation to sin draws close, we have an opportunity to take out the shield of faith and make it bounce off us so that we say no to sin by putting our active trust in Jesus and saying, Jesus, you are better than that sexual experience I could have. Jesus, you are better than saying an untrue word about someone. Jesus, you are better than all the money in this world. That's how you take up the shield of faith against temptations. The arrow is flying at you and you, Jesus is better. You put the shield up and the flame, the temptation may try and hit you, but it extinguishes because you've put your faith in Christ. The second way we may experience temptation or that we may experience the fiery doubts is a, is a slightly more insidious one. We will face the fiery doubts of uh, the fiery darts of doubt. You see, sometimes there's outright temptation to sin, but other times there's a rock in your shoe or a niggling thought in your head. And you begin to doubt the realities of God's love for you. You begin to doubt the realities that you truly are saved. You begin to doubt the realities that the gospel is the only way of salvation. You see, they come often in circumstances. You lose your job, perhaps, or a loved one, someone close to you gets ill or even dies. You have another miscarriage, a medical problem, or a missed opportunity. And the circumstance may just look to you like a circumstance, but then all these doubts start to flood your mind. Does God really care? Does he actually look after me? Is he even good? Can I trust him? Should I even go to him? All these thoughts start to come in and they're not thoughts that you normally have. And it's possible that they're thoughts that have been shot from the fiery pits of hell. Missiles seeking to burn you from the inside out, to destroy your faith in God, to make you question his goodness. 
And when those doubts and those niggles and those things that plague in your head come, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that we need to raise the shield of faith and double down with our trust in Christ. To not entertain those thoughts, to not let them play out one accusation after another because it's this endless loop and this endless cycle. But to raise the shield and say, I have put my trust in Christ and he has promised to do only good to me. I have put my trust in Christ. This is not punishment. This is part of his loving hand in my life. But if we don't raise the shield of faith, if we let our guard down, then the arrow seeks further in. The doubt increases and our lives and our faith starts to be robbed of joy, peace and security. So what do you do? You have to exercise your faith. You take the words of 1 Peter 5, 9, and you say, you know, you resist Satan standing firm in your faith. Well, James 4 verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus said to Satan, be gone, Satan, when he was tempted in the desert with doubt and all these little lies, and Satan fled from Jesus. These are real temptations. These are real doubts that come to you. And yes, maybe they came from you, but also they may have come from the evil one. And so we need to exercise faith by the power of the Holy Spirit and resist the devil so that he will flee and the darts will extinguish. But we can't exercise our faith if we haven't strengthened our faith. And so I believe that in order to truly raise the shield of faith, we need to take time before the darts come to learn how to hold it up. We need to study. We need to be asking hard questions. We need to strengthen our faith and know more about Jesus so that when the particular arrow comes, our shield is ready. We actually know what we believe. We know who we trust in. If the last time you prayed was six months ago, it's probably going to be pretty hard for you to raise the shield of faith when a temptation comes. But as you seek Christ daily, brothers and sisters, you are strengthening your faith so that when the next temptation comes, you're ready to defend. Brian Borgman um, talks about the assaults like this. He says, the assaults of the enemy are often brutal and relentless. However, faith is our impenetrable covering. Isn't that such comfort, brothers and sisters? We have protection. We really do. It's like we've got a force field around us when we don't trust in ourselves, but we trust in Christ. One poet put it like this. The fiery darts cannot withstand armor forged by the blood of Calvary. I love that. The fiery darts cannot withstand armor forged by the blood of Calvary. The shield that we have is forged by the blood of the Savior, and Satan cannot pierce through it. So, in all circumstances and areas of life, like the verse says, we need to take up our shield of faith, walk by faith and not by sight, to raise it against temptation, to raise it against doubt, so that we may be able to stand and stand 
firm. In the middle of this dangerous spiritual war, we need to stand, put on our spiritual armor so that we can fight and win. Take up the shield of faith by wholly resting in Jesus. That's point number one. Take up the shield of faith. Point number two, take the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, very simple. And take the helmet of salvation. See, as we move from the shield now to a piece of armor that we wear again, uh, Paul is actually referencing back to Isaiah chapter 59, a beautiful reference to God himself who, who puts on the, the, robe, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, and he goes in and he saves his people. But now we have this image of God who was wearing the helmet of salvation, placing it on our heads to protect us in the battle that we face. In this helmet in the Roman times would have been a great iron helmet or bronze perhaps, um, sometimes leather, a really heavy piece of um, thing to wear on your head. Not very comfortable and you'd have to have some epic neck muscles to be able to hold up your head to even do it. I think most of us, if we put one of those helmets on, we'd just be straight down. But the helmet was able to withstand an axe coming at it, arrows coming at it, protected the whole face almost and over the head. Um, and we, we need that kind of protection because this protects our minds. The mind is the, you know, the, the thought life of the Christian is one of the central places in which our spiritual activity happens. Our thoughts and what we think about God and the world, as we looked at in the last point, are so instrumental and so in need of protection. And the way we protect our minds is by our salvation. You see, the helmet is the helmet of salvation. By knowing that we truly are saved by Jesus, protects our minds from the lies and deception of the enemy. Because the helmet, like a, like a helmet gives you confidence. You know, footy players, when they put a helmet on, they're like, I can do anything. And they smash people on the head with it and get concussions and all that. The helmet is something that gives you confidence. And so putting on your helmet of salvation knowing that you truly are saved by Jesus enables you to walk with confidence in this spiritual battle. It enables you to go out knowing I can't be defeated because I am on the winning team. R. Kent Hughes says it like this. Now consider the helmet of salvation placed on our heads by the nail pierced hands of Christ at our conversion. I love that. The helmet assures us that whatever happens, we will be saved and experience victory in Christ. You see, the helmet of salvation is reminding ourselves of three things. The helmet of salvation is reminding ourselves of our past salvation, that it has been complete, that Jesus paid it all that there is no guilt or debt that stands between us and God anymore. Wearing the helmet of salvation reminds us of our present salvation, that God is our protector and our shield. I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Knowing that we have a present savior, not just a past savior, but a present savior. And wearing the helmet of salvation is reminding ourselves of our future salvation, 
we are saved, being saved, and one day we'll be finally saved. We wait eagerly the day when the timer runs out and the capture the flag game is finished and we're on the winning side. We long eagerly for the clouds to be rolled back as a scroll and for the trump to sound and for Christ to descend as he ascended into heaven. Wearing the helmet of salvation is reminding yourselves that though we're in the thick of war now, one day Satan uh, will be trampled under the feet of Jesus Christ as he rides on a white horse bearing the sword of the Spirit with a tattoo on his thigh. That's what is going to happen. And so, friends, if you are discouraged, if you're lacking direction or focus, if you're feeling weary in the battle, don the helmet of salvation once again. Remind yourselves and protect your head by knowing the actual game plan, your past, present, and future salvation that we have in Christ. And let it help you walk with assurance and confidence. Ephesians chapter 2 captures this reality well. Just meditate on these past, present, future realities of our salvation. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And this is present now. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So presently, that's where you and I stand. Wear that in your head. And finally, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's some of the things that we wear when we put on the helmet of salvation, past, present, future. And if you're someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus or you used to be and you're not really walking with him anymore, you can take this time now to review And to to ask yourself, am I wearing this helmet of salvation? Am I truly saved? Am I actually protected? Am I one that is alive with Christ? Have I moved from death to life? Have I put my trust in him? And can I commend to you, friend, that you lean and put your trust in Jesus for your salvation right now? Because there's an enemy out there who wants you to go the other way. He wants to drag you with himself into hell. And Jesus is offering full and complete salvation. Take that offer of salvation by confessing your sins and bowing the knee to King Jesus and do it right now so that you can know with confidence and assurance that you are saved. So when we feel doubt, discouragement, or despair, friends, put on the helmet of salvation. Remind yourselves again of the past, present, and future work that Christ has done for you. And may you walk with power and confidence, standing against the schemes of the devil. And finally, point number three, draw the sword of the spirit. So we had point number one, the shield of faith 
the helmet of salvation. And now we have the, the final weapon, the sword of the spirit. Let's read verse 17 again. Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's helpful that Paul makes it very clear what the sword of the spirit is here. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. So when we hold out the word of God, which is what we have here, the Bible, we know that we have a great tool in our arsenal. It's a tool that can be used both defensively and offensively. The, the sword, the, the Roman sword that Paul's talking about here is a short sword, one that is used in close hand-to-hand combat. The sword could be used to protect as the enemy came against and also to inflict wounds as you went out against the enemy. And that's exactly what the word of God is for us. In all these pieces of armor, it's the truths within the word of God that gives the armor their power because it's, that's how we know about any of these pieces. It's in the word of God. You see, it defends against the lies of the enemy and it cuts through and destroys his arguments as we try and help people to be saved. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, this word is not just words on a page. It's not an interesting historical document. It's a living and breathing weapon. It's a weapon that when read out convicts people of sin. It's a weapon that goes forth and penetrates even the hardest of hearts. It's a weapon that is a sure fire protection against the lies, deceptions, temptations, and doubts that the enemy brings against us. You see, when we use the word and trust in the word and rely upon the word, we have power. Not our power, but the living and breathing word of God that is behind the word. You see, the sword of the spirit, this is what the kind of things that the word of God does in people's life. It brings life out of death, light out of darkness, truth out of lies, joy out of sadness, hope out of despair, success out of failure. Holiness in the midst of temptation, strength in the midst of weakness, maturity out of our childishness, growth when we are stagnant, and direction when all we can feel is confusion. That is what the sword of the spirit does. In this dangerous spiritual war, how we need to wield the sword. That is why we must regularly take it up and never be ashamed of it. That is why, you know, we always, I am always encouraging, 
read the word, meditate on the word, memorize the word, study the word. It's not because that's how you get more points as a Christian. It's because the word of God does all these things and we're in a dangerous battle and you have a sword at your disposal, which you can inflict damage and protect from damage afflicting you. It's often something we talk about, so I'm not going to labor the point. You know, take up the sword. But one way in which we can take up the sword, which is often, you know, we don't always think about it, is how we actually wield the sword of the Spirit in amidst our worship. You see, Brian Borgman and Rob Ventura say it like this. When we sing the word in our worship, we are wielding the sword in song and the enemy cannot stand. You see, one of the reasons why we're so particular about the songs that we choose and the lyrics that we sing is because when we sing, we actually have our swords out and we're cutting through lies. We're actually going about and the the word of God as we sing it is piercing the division of joints and marrow. The word of God as we sing the word of God is actually, you know, breaking down um, people's lives and rebuilding them with life. And so one of the tools in which we can use to wield the sword of the spirit is by worship, is by singing true songs, songs that are about Christ, songs that are about God, songs that are from his scripture and have no impurity in them. Missionary to um, China in the 18th century, I believe, Mary Slosser said this, I sing the doxology and dismiss the devil. Martin Luther said this, music drives the devil away and makes people gay or happy. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and greatest honor. You see, in the midst of our dangerous spiritual war, one way in which we can wield the sword of the spirit is to sing is to sing doubt away, to sing temptation away, to sing the devil away, literally, because he cannot stand in the presence of a joyful Christian who loves God's word and is singing truth out. He hates the truth. He's the father of lies and lying is in his nature. And so when we sing, we are slicing through with the sword and protecting ourselves, our family, our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Worship is warfare. So draw the sword by singing a song. In the middle of our dangerous spiritual war, brothers and sisters, friends, we need to stand. And we need to put on our spiritual armor so that we can fight and win. And therefore, we need to draw the sword of the spirit. So how do we put on all these pieces of armor? We've gone through six of them. I spoke about this last time, but I want to repeat it again because it can just be a little bit like, what is this? It's still so weird. I want to repeat, how do you put on these pieces of armor? Well, let me say this again. It's not by magic. Okay. We don't just say, Helmet of salvation and boom, helmet of salvation appears and we are protected from the lies of the enemy. We can't just say breastplate of righteousness and then the righteousness comes on and then we're impervious to any, you know, temptation from sin. That's not what Paul is talking about here. 
like with all growth in the Christian life, all power in the Christian life comes from humbly looking to God in prayer and asking for these things and then pursuing it in practical application. You can't have the helmet of salvation. Oh, well, let me go through the list here. You know, like, like a Roman soldier, if he fights one battle with all of his armor on and then leaves it and walks to the next battle and doesn't have it, he's going to be naked and defenseless in that moment. We have to bring our armor with us everywhere we go. We have to sharpen our swords, carry the heavy armor. It's not easy. Spiritual warfare is not like going down to the, you know, the beach and having fish and chips. It's not a relaxing, comfortable time. It's warfare. And so to put on all these pieces of armor is actually really hard. It's time consuming. It's wearying. It's heavy. All these pieces of armor are really heavy. And so if you want to wear the belt of truth, you have to go and learn the truth. It's not magic. You have to learn the truth. You have to know truth to be able to wear the belt of truth so that when a lie comes to you, you can refute a lie. If you want to live righteously, you have to trust in the righteousness of Christ and reject sin that comes to you. And then you have the breastplate of righteousness. If you want to wear the boots of gospel peace, you have to go out prayerfully, humbly dependent upon God and actually declare the gospel to people. You have to put your faith in Christ to have the shield of faith. You have to remind yourself of the salvation, past, present, and future you have to actually be wearing the helmet of salvation. You have to actually read the Bible to have the Bible as the sword of the spirit that you wield in battle. You see, these things aren't coming to us magically by saying them out loud. We have to pursue putting them on. We have to work at them. We have to be constantly in the battle position, ready to go. And we do this primarily, I think, by prayer, which is what the whole next sermon is going to be about. We, we sort of pray all these pieces of armor on, not by magical words, but by hard work, by rehearsing truth in our mind, by re you know, declaring the gospel to ourselves in these moments. So it's not magic. It's spiritual warfare. We need to suit up, stand up, and fight. And we have to constantly be reviewing all these elements in our life if we want to be protected. Returning back to where we began, we're in this war. We're in this capture the flag game. Jesus has already planted it. He stole it from the enemy. It's there. But now we're waiting for God to press the time buzzer and call this whole thing off. But in the meantime, there's work to be done. There's people who are still stuck in enemy lines and we need to go out with the gospel of peace and bring them in. The enemy is still trying to attack us and make us miserable and, you know, doubt the fact that we're on the right team. And so we need to wear our spiritual armor. So let me end by reading verse 13 one last time. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Let us stand together as warriors of the, the same army. Let us do this not as individuals, but as brothers and sisters bearing arms together in Christ. And we must stand 
because the opposite would be disastrous for us. Would you join me in prayer? Almighty God, I thank you so much that we are not alone in our fight, that we have spiritual armor, that we can be protected. That is your grace to us, O Lord. We can be protected. I pray for myself and my friends that we would have power from you to wear the armor, to put it on, to not neglect putting it on. God, it's hard to remember. It's hard to always be in a wartime mentality. But Lord, would you help us to have spiritual discernment to see the battle that we are in at the moment? And God, I ask that you would empower us as a church to stand together for your glory, for your kingdom, for your name. And we pray this together as one church. Amen.